We are in a revolution. But it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. Hello and welcome to Tractor Time. Tractor Time is brought to you by Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. I'm your host, Ben Trollinger, Editorial Director of Acres USA, and on this episode, Dr. Zach Bush. He's a triple board certified physician with a focus on internal medicine, endocrinology, and hospice and palliative care. He currently runs a clinic in rural Virginia that focuses on plant-based nutrition and holistic health. He's an entrepreneur with a mind-boggling array of projects to his resume. So why is he on a podcast devoted to sustainable and organic agriculture? And why was he a keynote speaker at our EcoAg conference earlier this month? It's quite a story, as you'll hear. At his clinic a few years ago, Dr. Bush began noticing that nutrition-based medicine just wasn't working as he had expected. Some of his patients were just getting sicker. That led him on a journey deep into a dysfunctional and toxic agricultural system that is robbing crops of nutritional value, accelerating the decline of human health, destroying the environment, and paving the way for mass extinction. It gets pretty bleak. There's talk of disease, cataclysm, and collapse, but stick with it because Dr. Bush is at heart a radical optimist. He believes that regenerative agriculture can save the world by creating healthy soils that will sequester carbon, reverse climate change, produce highly nutritious food, and create healthier humans. To further that mission, Dr. Bush has started Farmer's Footprint, a nonprofit that aims to transition 5 million acres to regenerative practices by 2025. According to Dr. Bush, all successful revolutions start with farmers. We'll talk about that revolution here in a minute, but first these words. You are listening to the Tractor Time Podcast. We are proud to be sponsored by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are real farming equipment for real farmers and homesteaders. BCS is often mistaken for just a rototiller, but with gear-driven transmissions and dozens of professional quality implements, they truly make superior pieces of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy where small farms are a way of life, BCS two-wheel tractors are built to standards of quality and durability expected of real agricultural equipment, the kind of dependability every farm needs. With PTO-driven attachments like rototillers, flail mowers, rotary plows, power harrows, chippers and shredders, snow throwers, even a utility trailer and a high-pressure irrigation pump, BCS America can supply tools you need to get jobs done across the farm and the homestead. Even on large farms where a four-wheel tractor is a necessity, BCS two-wheel tractors will tackle jobs that simply can't be done with larger machines, from mowing steep slopes and along pond banks to working soil and high tunnels and hoop houses. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments and watch videos of BCS in action. Hey, this is Ben again. I'm thrilled to share my interview with Dr. Bush, who I have to say was a big hit at our EcoAg conference earlier this month. He had the audience on their feet doing calisthenics. He had them hugging each other, sharing their microbiome, and he got a standing ovation at the end. It was kind of like a Regen Ag tent revival. And if you're feeling like you missed out, I'm not going to lie. EcoAg was an amazing experience. Luckily for you, we recorded many of the speakers, and a ton of material will soon be available for sale at acresusa.com. This conversation is a little more subdued than his barn burner at EcoAg, but it's no less informative and no less inspiring. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. 
And without further ado, here's Dr. Zach Bush. Dr. Zach, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me here. I was hoping you could first walk us through your medical background. It's extensive, but you started in a place that's very different from where you are now. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. My background um, in medicine began in the very allopathic training of internal medicine. Um, I went through medical school at the University of Colorado and was very altruistic in my ex my expectations and, and excitement around that field. I had decided to go into medicine after having a, a, an experience for living in the Philippines in six months and working with a group of international midwives birthing babies there. And that's when I changed career course from engineering into medicine. And it was really around just the wonder and awe of human life and the experience of childbirth and watching the resilience of, of the human biology in the face of severe poverty and malnutrition and everything else and seeing biology overcome those challenges and uh, these children really thriving out there in, in some of the most impoverished areas of the world. So that was kind of my debut in, my redirect into medicine. And I really anticipated that I was gonna find this extraordinary toolbox of powerful resources of pharmaceuticals that had been tailor-made to target disease and prevent disease with vaccines and all kinds of promises that I think all of us kind of have a, have a bit of an anticipation or belief in around this you know, modern, world of expensive and, and very scientifically driven uh, pharmaceutical medicine. In that journey, I uh, eventually found myself into internal medicine, which is uh, based in a lot of uh, advanced disease. And so it's the subspecialty that uh, is the foundation for things like cardiology and pulmonology and renal. All of these subspecialties in medicine focus on one disease type. And so what I didn't realize was happening to me at the time is I was being I was being blindfolded to kind of any bigger picture of what was happening in human health. And I was being put into these narrow kind of viewpoints or perspectives and then asked to create, you know, research bodies and, uh, and streams of thought or from these very narrow perspectives. And so my research after internal medicine and as I went into a, an additional subspecialty in endocrinology where I was studying the effects of hormones and metabolism or the usage of fuel in cancer cells and healthy cells and how they differed. That journey was taking me kind of with bigger and bigger blinders on to the bigger reality around me. Then in about 2008, 2009, my world started to deconstruct because my patients after eight years of being a physician were, were declining rather than improving on the best you know science and technology and, and education that I, I could bring to bear. And I was seeing their health you know, decline. I was starting to lose patients. And when you're, you have patients dying around you, when you feel like you're using all of the right tools, it was forcing me to kind of reevaluate the promise that had been kind of innate in these, the pharmaceutical training I had gotten. During that time, I was also doing my cancer research. I was developing chemotherapies and uh, starting to, to find extraordinary resources within the, the nutrition world. I was working with vitamin A compounds to kill cancer cells. And it was extraordinary to see the capacity of nutrients to act as, as kind of these safe and non-toxic uh, approaches to cancer management. And so that was starting to open up my, my viewpoint a little bit. And by 2009, 2010, the world of endocrinology was starting to realize that we could reverse diabetes and heart disease and all kinds of autoimmune conditions through a change in the diet. And so time was ripe for me to have kind of a cataclysmic reorientation of my perspective 
And I would say the universe kind of conspired against me at that point and shut all of the, the doors in the pharmaceutical industry towards my research. Uh, we were in the middle of a huge recession. The university was losing funding from the NIH. All kinds of things were kind of cataclysmic. And in that, I really found myself with no doors open with the exception of one, which was to pursue this question of nutrition as a, a route to reversing chronic disease. And so that's what I did in 2010. I left the university and went out to rural Virginia in one of the poorest uh, counties in Virginia, serving Buckingham County. I started a, a rural nutrition clinic and, and with the endeavor to teach nutrition and, and lifestyle management to patients to help them uh, break their codependence on the pharmaceutical model that had been handed to them. And many of these families, you know, third and fifth generation poverty were showing me incredible capacity to come out of, you know, chronic disease and, and a, a huge burden of cost to their pharmaceutical dependence and find this kind of health independence through food and through growing food for their families, churches, and communities again. So it was a really invigorating time for me to realize that as deficient as I had felt as a physician with a, equipped with a toolbox of drugs, I was finding myself feeling really equipped and really well prepared to change people's lives through this, this story of nutrition. I mean, it's astounding that nutrition and its role in human flourishing and health is sort of seen as a fringe idea or a radical approach to medicine. Um, but that really just speaks to, I think, some of the limitations of modern medicine itself. How, how did you come to be sort of in that, that place on the fringe of, of seeing this connection between human health and, and nutrition? What, what drove you there? I, I want to hear more about that, but also what did you find when you started um, implementing that approach? Yeah, good questions. Yeah, so I think what was happening to me is a personality type one. I, I have this relentless drive to, to figure out the most base root cause of a problem or and find root solutions to that. And so I used to be in construction and before that I was in automotive work all the time and I was you know rebuilding classic cars and building you know custom four-wheel drives and I just thrived on any environment where there was an inherent challenge and there was a, a mechanical approach or solution that I could find and so I started applying that just personality trait to to health and realizing that I, I didn't actually know the first thing about a healthy cell um, I didn't know how water got into a cell I didn't know how nutrients actually got delivered into a cell I, I didn't understand the the kind of chemical reactivity of these macro and micronutrients on the plate and how they would become biologically uh, available to us as they were digested by bacteria and fungi and all these non-human elements that, that are the organic garden of our gut. And so I started to realize that I just had absolutely no understanding of what was going on here. And that was humbling and super exciting in the sense that I felt like, man, if, if this is true, if, we, if, if the secret to human health is as simple as a reconnection to a diverse organic system of, of microbes and their interaction with our gut lining, then that seems like a really powerful way not to treat diabetes or cancer, but actually fundamentally change the fabric of, or the terrain of human experience such that disease would become irrelevant. And, and it would no longer be about the prevention of disease, it would be about the fostering of health. And so it was these subtle changes that were starting to open up my mind to the possibility of I could fundamentally change an entire healthcare system if I could apply the same rigor of science that I did to drug development to this understanding of what makes a cell healthy. And so that's what uh, I ended up doing. Um, I launched a, a, this nutrition center in 2010 
but as you said, as you asked secondarily there, you see what, what was the impact of applying these new you know, perspectives. And it was very frustrating in those first couple of years because I was reading, you know, some of the best science and plant medicine out there, things like, you know, Colin Campbell's work out of the China, pro, uh, the China study in the 1990s, uh, recapping, you know, almost 30 years of his career in, in plant-based science. Esselstein out of Cleveland Clinic reversing cardiovascular disease and alongside him, Gabe Merkin out of Georgetown reversing cardiovascular disease, passing that on to, uh, you know, the likes of Neil Barnard, who wrote the book Reversing Diabetes through Plant-Based Diet in the 2000s. So there'd been this like track record of 30 years of data around the plants. And so I just would set out and just assume that must all be true and start applying that to my patients in, in pretty aggressive form. I was forcing my patients, especially with chronic disease and severe forms, I was asking them to juice as much as two pounds of kale a day and this kind of thing. So I was going all out to get nutrient density and nutrient impact on their bodies. And there was a full third of those patients that were actually getting worse, not better on those kinds of regimens. And that really, again, challenged the, the status quo or, or state of knowledge that we had at that point with plant-based medicine. This again was kind of in the 2010, 2011 era. What that forced us into was starting to ask what could be missing in the food or what is now in the food that wasn't there in the, in the 70s and 80s when all the science debuted. And really quickly, just looking you know, within minutes of researching nutrient density within vegetables and fruit, you realize, find out almost immediately that we're dealing with 10 times less, sometimes 100 times less nutrient density in our, in our fruits and vegetables today than we had just 25 years ago. And so that was challenging our understanding of plants and like how do these nutrients end up in that? And that answer to that is obviously soil. And so as we started to dive into soil science, one of my colleagues brought in a white paper and in that uh, on page 40 is this molecule that looked a lot like the chemotherapy I used to develop. And so that moment of like, oh my gosh, what if there was medicine in the soil itself? And that could then translate into to a medicinal quality within the plant and then impact human biology. That started to close the loop of, our, of some of the correlations we had made in science, which were showing us that we could start to predict which type of cancer a human would get by the changes in the microbiome or the soil of their gut. And so we had made those correlations, UCSF, UCSD, all these universities, but nobody had like put, put the links together as to how, what the mechanism of action was. So as we uncovered these carbon molecules that were made by bacteria and fungi that looked to have medicinal properties, we started to be able to kind of put those pieces together. So o over the past 40 years, human health has taken a pretty dramatic turn for, for the worse. So I, I was wondering if maybe we could step back a little bit and sort of explain in, in general what human health has looked like and what it looks like today over the last 40 years. I mean, you've seen this rapid decline. I mean, what, what does that look like statistically? I mean, just obesity rate, the obesity rate is skyrocketed, you're seeing the rate of diabetes skyrocketing, all these things are sort of snowballing. Yeah, it's, it's a terrifying you know, look at the epidemic and, and the exponential growth of these disease processes. And so you mentioned a couple of big ones right now, obesity is one in three adults in America and other, many other Western nations. Um, we also see China starting to really suffer with an obesity problem. They actually realize uh, abdominal obesity and diabetes at a much lower weight uh, body mass index than Americans do. And so the European kind of Anglo uh, genomics seem to be able to tolerate a higher amount of visceral fat than the Asian uh, genomics do. 
And so from west to east now, we see this explosion of, of pre-diabetes and diabetes. Uh, it's looking like China might have as many as one in three or one in four Chinese with, with pre-diabetes now. And so we could see the largest uh, you know, scale of chronic disease in the world happening in China over the next decade. And so we've got this opportunity, I think, to interact, intervene early in these other nations that have exported both our nutrition and pharmaceutical management of humans uh, at an earlier stage and hopefully, you know, stave off the disaster we're now seeing in, in the United States. Here in the U.S., that disaster is now on, on a, a proportion previously unimagined. Recent insurance um, surveys are showing that some 52% of, of children under the age of 18 are, have some sort of chronic disease or disorder diagnosed. That is a stunning number when you consider that 4% of the entire population was, was seen to have a chronic disease in the 1960s. So over a short couple of generations, we see this, you know, more than half of our children burdened with disorder and disease. You know, that's kind of on the illness and cost of care side. On the other side of reproductivity, we've seen almost the identical drop. We've seen sperm counts in the United States drop 52%, the same same number of the chronic disease climbed. So 52% drop in sperm counts over the last 40 years. And that spreads beyond the US. All Western nations now are seeing that similar drop between 52 and 58% drops in sperm counts. To get that average to drop that far, we've gotten that bell curve to, to start to cause uh, infertility by low sperm counts below 15 million uh, sperm per milliliter in one in three males in Western countries. If you continue to follow this line that hasn't even started to, to bottom out yet, we could see as much as 80% of the population sterile and infertile within the next 30 years. And so that quickly brings into to viewpoint the end of a species. And so when you lose reproduction and raise the chronic disease and, and disorder to the levels that we've seen today, let alone where we're heading, it's clear that we are, are near the end of our species record on Earth. And in addition to the sort of health issues you mentioned, I mean, also, you know, allergies are far more prevalent than they used to be. Um, gluten sensitivity, things like that are also on the rise. Autism. Talk a little bit about those, those issues. And also maybe kind of to tie this all together, talk about how as our health has been declining over the past 40 years as a population, we also radically transform the way that we grow food. And there, in my mind, is a link between those two things, and, and I think you think so as well. Absolutely. So yeah, these uh, childhood conditions of autism, attention deficit, allergy, eczema, autoimmune disease, these are becoming you know, so prevalent. And uh, we've got you know, logarithmic growths over the course of the 1990s to, to today. Uh, with these syndromes. And so if you superimpose on that the debut of genetically modified crops that we've been al allowed and, and capable of spraying directly with Roundup and glyphosate, you can see a perfect correlation of, of these chronic diseases hitting the, the field. And on the autism side, the numbers are truly spectacular. We've gone from one in, uh, in 5,000 children with autism in 1975, the, basically the year that we debut Roundup, to today where we see one in 32 children or one in 36 children with autism. And so that is a crushing you know, rate of growth. And if that had all happened you know, a couple decades ago, we might question maybe we weren't measuring it well back then and maybe we are overestimating this, this epidemic. 
but the reality is the steepest increases in the rates of these autistic children have happened in the last six years. And so we're seeing this, you know, steady increase in, in the neurologic injury of children. And of course, autism is just the beginning of the burden. If you look at attention deficit and hyperactivity disorders, you're now at one in 10 children. And those are diagnosed. We don't even screen for that condition. In other countries where we see universal screening of things like ADHD or asthma, it's more like one in four or one in six children. And so uh, we've got just this you know, extraordinary burden where children's neurologic capacity to, to sensory process is deficient and, and defective. When we can't even sensory process as a species, our survival, again, is, is very much in, in doubt. And so the, the uh, debut of you know therapies for autism have been completely uh, you know out of reach in the Western medical world because there's no one lesion that's causing autism. Autism is a, a syndrome that born out of kind of the perfect storm of the of the destruction of the terrain of normal biology. That terrain begins not in the human cell, but in again the microbiome, the bacteria, the fungi, parasites, viruses all of these you know, extraordinarily complex ecosystems of microbial life that builds our, not just our gut, but also our sinuses and, and respiratory systems, our uh, skin, of course. And then now we're finding it's actually in our internal organs, breast, prostate, even the brain is now found to have microbiome present all the time, both in a healthy state as well in pathologic states, we see a shift in the microbiome in the brain, in Alzheimer's dementia, Parkinson's, things like this. In human breast cancer, we see a shift in the microbiome that predicts the occurrence of breast cancer. As that bacterial you know, support to that damaged breast continues to falter, that woman is more and more likely to die of breast cancer. And so uh, all of these you know, stories are, are starting to paint this extraordinary picture that as we destroy the, the terrain of our organic garden, biology simply fails on top and it will manifest as any number of diseases asthma to autoimmune, cancer to acne, it's all the same process. It's all symptoms of the collapse of biological communication. We'll talk a little bit about agricultural practices over the last several decades. Um, you mentioned earlier that you were putting your patients at your clinic in rural Virginia on these plant-based, whole food plant-based protocols, and they weren't reacting in the way that you it had anticipated, potentially because of the lack of nutrients in, in the food that they were getting. So how did we get to that point where we have a food system that is not producing nutritious food? Yeah. Uh, so the debut of chemical agriculture really you know, started around World War II when we started to roll out the petroleum fertilizers, uh, sodium, or I'm sorry, uh, nitrogen, potassium. Uh, phosphorus and potassium being the, the MPK fertilizers there. And, and those kind of created what became to be called the Green Revolution, where we were taking these dead soil environments that we had killed through poor soil and crop management in the 1910s, 20s, and 30s, and we created the, the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression with the destruction of topsoil over those decades. We then started to reverse out of that, we thought, with, with the debut of these petroleum fertilizers, where we're taking oil and turning it into you know extracts that could then put some some building blocks back in the soil and that created unfortunately an immediate codependence instead of fixing the soil with age-old proven technologies of composting crop rotation cover cropping instead we just became dependent on these chemical inputs what happens when you grow 
a plant in an in a MPK rich fertilizer is you'll get a very green, fast growing plant. But what you cannot see is that plant has a deficiency in immune system and complexity of nutrient diversity and production and the like. And that weakened plant now becomes very prone to insects and illnesses, viral and otherwise, fungal invasion and all this. And so then we you know, have the answers from the pharmaceutical companies that are happy to give us more herbicides and pesticides and all of that, when in fact, we should have just changed the behavior of the soil and prevented those things in the first place, but we failed that. And we've been more and more codependent every year because these chemicals actually cause a depletion in the soil at every stage. The granddaddy of them all, Roundup, uh, or glyphosate, the active ingredient in the Roundup, has an extraordinary capacity to kill the microbiome. It functions as an antibiotic, functions to destroy, destroy that microbial foundation, the mycorrhizae, the fungi, the earthworms. This diverse ecosystem collapses, and so the nutrient bioavailability of the plant is diminished. It goes more insidious than that, too, though, that Roundup actually chelates critical minerals that would have been getting into the plant. And so it grabs those and keeps them away from the plant so that we are deficient in nutrients in that fashion. Finally, the glyphosate also destroys membranes, and so it disrupts cell-cell communication and, and the connection between our barrier cells at the root system of the plant or at the gut system of the human or the cow or the dog or the cat. All of us have these leaking root systems, and we can't get nutrients and water out of our intestines as we were intended to. And so with that, we also see that chemical glyphosate getting into the physiology of the, the larger organisms. So whether it's the cow, the cat, or the human, we're now consuming a large amount of these residues of these chemicals and they get into the water structure of our body. These water soluble toxins of Roundup and glyphosate stay in the circulation of our body uh, in all areas. And so get into the, the immune system, the, the lymph system, it gets into the bloodstream, gets into the blood brain environment and the cerebral spinal fluid, it gets into our urine, it gets into our sweat. You know, it's literally like exuding from every pore in our body. In the larger ecosystem, it does the same thing. It moves from soil into groundwater, into rivers, and from rivers, it starts to, uh, to dissipate into the air and then consolidating clouds and rain down. In our agricultural environments, we see 75% of the air and 75% of the rainfall contaminated and detectable for Roundup. And so we have this, this we are steeped now in a planet that is water biology. We have this organophosphate toxin family uh, kind of infiltrated into every segment of biology, and we are suffering for that. We're seeing, you know, the collapse of soil systems, you know, bee, bee colonies, you know, moth populations are disappearing overnight. It's just like the whole ecosystem starting to really suffer under this, this decimation of these chemicals. And so what was happening to my patients who were, you know, kale juicing and doing all this whole food plant-based approach I unknowingly was exposing them to high amounts of chemical. I didn't know that I needed to demand of them to eat organic. In fact, in, the, in our uh, county of Buckingham, there was no access to organic food. There's literally no organic food sold in, in Buckingham County there. So, you know, most people are, have poor access to grocery stores, let alone organic food. So a lot of people are eating out of gas stations. You know, when you walk into a, a country gas station on your road trip and you see those rotisserie hot dogs and Twinkies and you know, I guess Twinkies are off the market now. It's Little Debbie's and the rest. That is, a, that is the staple diet in a lot of these communities across the Midwest and in the Deep South and beyond where they, they are literally in these food deserts. Yeah, the New York Times had a story out, I think, just this past week about 
rural agricultural communities becoming food deserts and having very little access to, to whole foods. It was, and I think a lot of people would find that report shocking, but if you've been paying attention to sort of the trends in agriculture for the last, you know, couple decades, it, it's sort of par for the course. Absolutely. And it's, it's no longer on the town level. It's now getting to the state level. Uh, the most agricultural state that we have in the United States is Kansas. 90% of the acreage of Kansas is under agricultural use. At the same time, Kansas now has to import 90% of its food, and one in four children goes hungry each night in Kansas. And so we are literally starving our, our farm populations in, in the most fertile lands that we own, uh, we used to own. You know, unfortunately, 6,000 to 8,000 farms are going out of business every year now, and a lot of those are being born, bought up by foreign interests. You know, the, the Russians, the Chinese, these huge international conglomerates, investment groups, venture capitalists in the United States you know, are buying up farmland. And so the farmers just are so far removed from any you know, autonomy and, and sense of ownership in the land anymore. And so uh, we have to reverse this pattern if we have any hope uh, of survival. You, you've called glyphosate uh, public enemy number one, and you just finished detailing sort of the um, processes in which it can undermine ecological and human health. Um, and I and I want you to talk more about that, but you know I, I'm kind of curious when I hear people talk about glyphosate in the media. You know, you might hear from the World Health Organization that labels it a, a possible carcinogen, for example. And then you know you have Monsanto saying, well, it's actually a really safe uh, herbicide compared to an herbicide like say Paraquat or something like that. So to me, the the narrative that you hear often in public is. We don't really know. The science doesn't really conclusively prove whether or not it's uh, this widespread disaster, ecological disaster. You seem really confident in how you outline its impact on our on our health and in, on our environment, particularly in agricultural communities. Sort of talk about sort of the science undergirding what what you're saying. I really want to hear more about about that because I think. You know, glyphosate is widespread. I mean, its use, I mean, it's not just agricultural. You, you, I remember old TV ads that, that would show dad with the, the holster and the, and, the, and the bottle of Roundup. sprayers. <laughs> yeah, you know, just he was, you know, he was dousing a, a dandelion growing out of his driveway or something like that. So it's not just farmers who are using it. It's, 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 it's use is widespread. But talk a little bit about the science behind some of your conclusions. Yeah, I guess quickly on the widespread thing, we're now using an estimated four and a half billion pounds of, of glyphosate worldwide. Wow. I think that makes it the, the most ubiquitous chemical on earth now. And like you say, uh, a, a large amount of that is being used in municipal and, and household settings. And so every Department of Transportation in every state in the United States uses it to spray along highway systems under our power, uh, power lines, our utilities companies use it. Um, our uh, school systems use it on playing fields, soccer fields, lacrosse, football, you name it. All of our uh, golf courses are steeped in really extremely high levels of Roundup. Uh, we've got backyard lawns, backyard gardens, all of them being sprayed with Roundup. And the thing that is kind of particularly concerning about these non-agricultural applications is 
your Department of Transportation employee who's who's sent out with a sprayer truck to go drive the the power line you know route has absolutely no care for the concentration of that chemical that's going into this strip of grass that's supposed to be dead. The farmer tends to know that you know the more Roundup they spray, the more earthworms they kill. One application of Roundup at, at small concentrations uh, measured by a farmer can kill up to 50% of the deep earthworms and 100% of the, the surface worms uh, in that soil. And so the farmer, I think, has a better sense and has narrower margins in their use of these inputs. And so they're likely to use a, a lower concentration, whereas a, uh, you know, an employee at a public school has no, no concern if it's, a, if it's half a gallon or a gallon. That's $6 of difference. It doesn't matter. And so they can get really high concentrations on the sidewalks at the school or across the football field or whatever it is. And, and so we see this you know, creep of toxicity as, as people are unawares of uh, and not limited by tight budgets in their application of these chemicals. So what are the health consequences and why do we have this disparate you know, science that's saying it's not a carcinogen, it's totally safe, safer than water was the old marketing campaign by Monsanto around Roundup. And then you've got all of these World Health Organizations and scientists all over the world raising the sound bells. My team just participated in an EPA hearing in, in Washington, D.C., where we demonstrated 96 studies in human biology and otherwise showing the toxicity of Roundup its ability to create cancers. Monsanto themselves published their own cancer data back in the 1980s. And so they've known for 40 years, you know, the, the history of this, you know, potential carcinogenic effect of these compounds. And I believe that's what recently led to these huge settlements from, from the court system. And actually just had dinner the other night with the lawyer that, that won that first big uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma case in California last year with $289 million settlement, that, that court case was won when he finally got the judge to agree to allow the jury to see the data that Monsanto had been suppressing in their own archives. And when the jury saw that, they were so offended by a company that would intentionally bury this, this data. And that's why they whacked them with you know, this massive settlement, which of course never got paid to the family. Quietly, a month later, the judge wrote that down to a $30 million settlement instead of a $289 million settlement. So, you know, in the subtle ways, this, these companies are protected on so many levels from, from judiciary justice. And um, so why is it? So how is it that they keep getting away with this? A lot of this comes down to the fact that we, the science that Monsanto is showing to say that this is not carcinogenic is based on a very old belief system about what carcinogenesis is. We used to believe, and many people in the, in the chemotherapy and physician scientist world still believe that cancer is caused by a series of genetic injuries. The average cancer cell in a human system has 20,000 unrepaired gene injuries. And so it's not too confusing to see how we came to believe that it was the accumulation of genetic injuries that led to a cancer. And we've always then shown safety or toxicity in, in cancer-causing compounds by their ability to directly damage DNA. Keep in mind, we developed in our 200,000-year history of human species with a massive radiation device in the sky called the sun. We are very good at DNA repair. If DNA repair, if, if DNA injury was really the cause of cancer, then it would have to be something that was logarithmically more toxic than the sun and the radiation exposure that we get there. 
reality is none of these chemicals are more damaging than direct UVB light. UVB is, you know, breaks every DNA strand that it sees. And so what, what is the difference? If the cell is really good at repairing DNA, then what is the cause of cancer? And so now we're starting to realize as we back up out of the cell that the cause of cancer is a shift in the extracellular environment around that human cell that, that destroys its ability to prepare the DNA. And so this is how glyphosate gets it causing cancers. It takes away all of the repair mechanisms and then DNA injury accumulates. But if you give glyphosate to a cell, you can't show direct DNA damage. And so Monsanto was able to hide behind this, you know, kind of erroneous paradigm or, or presumption about what cancer causing is. We are way beyond that in science now. We know that you know, genetic injury isn't the beginning of cancer. It's a downstream symptom of those dysfunctions. And yet the industry is able to continue to hide around this old scientific belief system. But there's no doubt in your mind that glyphosate is, is having catastrophic effects on our ecosystem. No, there's, there's zero doubt. I mean, uh, I can show it all day long. I, I'd invite anybody to my basic science laboratory. You pick the cell type and I'll show you the direct damage from Roundup, and I'll show you the downstream consequences of that. The rigorous science that has been done around this has really you know, been done by universities and everybody else out there. We've got this, you know, some of the most damning science right now is the generational stuff. And so we're showing that if you inject a small amount of Roundup under the skin of a mouse, and so you give one exposure to their biology um, over the course of their lifetime, just one injury, there's no perceivable injury. They live out a full life, they are reproductive. Where you start to see the damages is in the, in the second generation. In their pups, uh, the mice have metabolic collapse, and so they've got you know, obesity, prediabetes, they have autoimmune and immune dysfunction, they have all of this. In the third generation, again, you're not exposing each generation around them, it's the downstream epigenetic effects of the original injury. And so now grandma's injury from Roundup is manifesting in that third generation as stillborns, birth defects, and early cancers. The thing that I find terrifying is we have not yet, and we are just beginning to birth the third generation of Roundup babies and humans. We have not even seen the beginning of the full force of the carcinogenic capacity of the epigenetic injury from these chemicals. I think we are about to see a collapse of Western civilization under the pressure of this generational accumulation of toxicity from these compounds that we added to our food in really big amounts in 1996, but it started back in the 1970s. And so we, we have a lot to fear and we have a lot to fix quickly if we're not gonna see this cataclysmic event. Well, so in, in terms of our health, where are we heading specifically if we do nothing to combat these trends? I mean, you, you just mentioned collapse. What does that, what does that look like? And, and yeah. how quickly does that, does that come? It's not even, you know, theoretical anymore. Like, you know, year on year now, the, the raises, rise of these diseases is so fast, it's very easy for us to extrapolate. And all we have to do is go, you know, 15 years forward now to see, see the collapse of the, the American empire. Uh, and that's just through financial burden, not even forget about reproductivity, forget about chronic disease. The financial burden of our health situation will collapse our economy completely. Right now, we're just living on borrowed time. We have the most expensive healthcare system in the world. We spend nearly $4 trillion of taxpayer money for disease management. None of that does, does human health, right? <clears throat> so we're spending $4 trillion. You know, our economy is, you know, the, the entire GDP is what, around $17 trillion now or something. And so we're spending 20% of our GDP on 
disease management. To give you a sense of how big that budget is, that's 5x the entire budget for the military and homeland spending and everything else. So uh, 5x our, our defense spending just for disease management. We're expected now to hit $5 trillion in health spend, in disease spending by 2025, just five years out. And so this pace is picking up now, the cost is picking up. We're already spending around $9,600 per person, man, woman, and child in the United States per year for disease management, almost 10 grand a year for every person. That cost cannot be sustained by any economy on the planet. If we extrapolate past five years out to 15 years, we will see one in three children with autism. That's not just the extraordinary cost, which is now estimated that a full-blown autism case can cost us somewhere around a million dollars a year in the combination of healthcare expenses and lost productivity, typically of two generations. It takes so much effort to take care of a child with severe autism that you're not just taking out both parents, you're taking out grandparents. Grandparents are now cashing in their you know, savings and their retirement to help try to offset the, the catastrophic fiscal you know, impact of this disorder on our families. So one in three children with autism at the same time, which we will hit 70 to 80% of adults with cancer. We're already at one in two adults with cancer in the United States. The statistics are just so, so mind boggling that you wouldn't even believe them, except if you will take a moment right now and pause and ask yourself, do you know anybody with cancer right now? And how many people do you know with cancer? Do you know any children with asthma, autism, attention deficit, eczema, food allergies, gluten sensitivity, et cetera? It, it's a truly extraordinary. We're now documenting families of four, two parents, two kids, that between the four people, we can diagnose 26, 28, 30 different chronic conditions and diseases. And so the penetrance is not just one condition. It's not a kid with autism. It's a kid with complete you know, metabolic disorders, kid with, you know, all the rest of the array of the diseases. Major depression, one in two adults now expected to be majorly depressed. Suicide is now ranking in third cause of death in our country in many populations, and, and farmers are hit most heavily. Farmers are now 5x the suicide rate of any other industry. The catastrophic effects of Trump's recent administrative uh, kind of isolationism has resulted in these tariffs that have destroyed uh, the economic situation from everything from grain commodities to dairy. Dairy is obviously hit harder than almost any under other agricultural industry right now. And the American co-op of dairy uh, farmers, which is what pays out, you know, to, to the farmers each month, um, farmers send in their milk, they get their check at the end of the month. Those checks have gotten so small and, and they are so psychologically terrifying uh, for farmers that the, the American Dairy Co-op is now putting suicide hotline information in every paycheck. And so this is the state of affairs we've gotten to is that there is this massive state of hopelessness. There's a ma massive state of neurochemical instability. Uh, and I can actually tell you exactly how glyphosate causes major depression now. Uh, we, we've been showing that glyphosate destroys the bacteria that sit in the gut lining and stimulate the enteric endocrine cells in the gut lining to produce serotonin and dopamine. 90% of the serotonin produced in your body is made by bacteria. I'm sorry, made by the enteric endocrine cells. And now we know that is dependent on the right bacteria being present. As you eat glyphosate, it wipes those out. You cause damage to the enteric endocrine system. You collapse your, your serotonin production.
So, I mean, first order of business, if, if you had your druthers would be banned glyphosate, stop spraying it, stop using it. But it seems to me that if you just did that, it wouldn't necessarily do anything to combat the sort of pharmaceutical mindset that we have when it comes to human health and really to agricultural in general. They're very similar in the way that they're applying chemical inputs as a means to fix problems. Um, but that sort of brings me to your current project, Farmer's Footprint, which is really about trying to foment uh, real lasting solutions to these issues that you just walked us through. And I would, I would love it if you could tell our listeners a little bit about what Farmer's Footprint is, how it came to be, and what are its goals? Farmer's Footprint uh, came out of uh, a documentary that I decided needed to be produced. Um, and so my company funded a, a documentary pro, uh, filming uh, project in the beginning of 2000. 18, we tackled the project, and it was February of 2018 that we started filming up in Minnesota with the goal of filming all the way down the tributary systems of the Mississippi River, all the way to New Orleans, which is at the, at the mouth of the Mississippi there. And uh, we had already shown the public health statistics, this again underpinning my surety that, that glyphosate is at the, the crux of our cancer uh, situation. We had shown by uh, pulling CDC cancer maps and death patterns before 1996 and after 96, we show a complete reversal of our cancer map in the United States. It should be literally genetically impossible uh, to change the, the pattern of cancer in a heterogeneous population like we have in the United States. It should even be more impossible to change that over like a seven year period. And that's exactly what we did. 1996 uh, and the next seven years saw the reversal of the cancer map. Cancer went up all the way across the country, but instead of the Northeast and Northwest being the highest rates of cancer death, it suddenly became centered down in the South. And uh, that has continued uh, to this day. So much so that the last 90 miles of the Mississippi River from Baton Rouge to New Orleans is now called Cancer Alley, highest rates of cancer in the whole world. And that 90 mile strip of the Mississippi, which collects 85% of the Roundup, this water soluble toxin from the North, the Midwest, all the way down through the southern growing states and consolidates that in the Mississippi River. 75% of the air, 75% of the rainfall also contaminated with Roundup throughout these whole regions. And so now we have this population steeped in this chemical and the explosion of cancer happening around it. So we set out to film that documentary, tell that story. And when I got on the ground with my team in, in February of 2018 and started sitting with farmers in their living rooms all the way across this fro frozen wasteland of, of a, a dead soil environment of the north uh, Midwest, northern Midwest, we started to realize we had missed the whole story. Uh, I had thought this was a story around Roundup and glyphosate, and we needed to go towards an organic agricultural system. And what we found instead was a devastated economy that had no hope of, of you know, recovery, even if we banned Roundup. We needed to fundamentally change not just the, the fundamentals of farming practice, we needed to change the economy of farming back so that there could be an independent-minded farmer that could be autonomous in their, their fiscal wellness and they could be creative in their problem solving for their specific piece of land. And knowing that every land is different, every piece of property has its own challenges and opportunities, has its own demands for biodiversity. And so we knew that one size wasn't gonna fit all, but we were devastated to find out that just how deep the, the brokenness of our farming industry is. 
it does not stop at the chemicals. It really goes to the farm bill. The farm bill has created a false economy around our farmers that is incentivized and then ultimately required them to stay steeped in commodities farming of grains and, and such, corn, soybean, alfalfa, sugar beets, sugar cane, all of the rest. These are highly subsidized crops. Farmers can no longer make money selling their food on the international market because the, the market prices are so diminished over time because of the glut of, of, of commodities. We are not starving in this planet because there's a lack of food production. We're growing the wrong things. Like I said, Kansas is, is starving itself uh, out in its own production of non-food agricultural mass. And so we have to realign these realities, but we can't do it until we break the back of the farm bill. And so the documentary became a nonprofit with Farmer's Footprint realizing we need to tackle this on a multi-scale thing. Farmer's Footprint is our education arm of this, but we're also about to roll out a much bigger uh, vision of, of Project Biome. Project Biome looks at these four different sites. One is awareness uh, and activation of the consumer and farmer alike. Number two is education. We need the consumer and the farmer to understand why this change is necessary and how to make the changes. And then we need uh, dramatic changes in our economic structure. So we're working across the spectrum with all stakeholders, including private insurance companies and others to create alternatives to the, the USDA crop insurance, which is backed by the farm bill and demands the, the relationship to these subsidies. Bankers cannot lend money to the farmer unless they are subsidized because if the farm fails, the bank needs to know they're going to get paid through the farm bill and through the USDA farm insurance, which is really a welfare program, not an insurance company. And so they, they're demanding that. So we need to break, break this codependent relationship between bank, farm bill, and farmer and start to create real commerce. And so we've been very excited to see there's a lot of private equity um, hedge funds, family foundations, even we're looking at national pension uh, programs that are interested in aligning themselves with farmers to create capital for these farmers to do the right thing and to make the shift towards diverse uh, crop production and all of that again, start growing food again and, and help protect them to make, and, and empower them to make those uh, financial investments. One of the, the last step then after, after economy is uh, po political policy. And so we've got uh, the fourth element within our Project Biome Farmers Footprint mix is this policy piece. And we're looking to, to scale up solutions. We're doing it with our first kit that just rolled out in the last couple of weeks, which is our non-toxic neighborhoods project, recognizing that the third largest crop grown in the United States is actually lawn. Uh, lawn grass is, covers 40 million acres now compared to 63 million acres of, of food production and 63 million acres of grain for livestock. And so it's, it's massive uh, impact. And so the Non-Toxic Neighborhoods Project we just rolled out has successfully gotten Roundup banned from communities like Irvine, Houston, Miami, uh, LA. And so huge counties are now banning it in their municipal uh, systems. And, and that's a real excitement to us because it can't just be a farm solution. We, we need all uh, stakeholders to make these changes. And so that we're doing that at kind of the, the uh, community level, but we're also seeing school boards and uh, city councils take that toolkit on and, and make changes. Not only is it showing you why you have to need to buy, ban the, the toxins, it also shows the biologic toolkit to do herbicide pest management without the chemicals. And so that toolkit is available at farmersfootprint.us and it applies to the farms just as much, but that one and we get to really target at that kind of consumer city level. 
the, the farm education is really exciting. We're working with uh, partners at Soil Health Academy, at uh, Rodale Institute, Savory Network over in, in uh, Australia. We're working with the reg um, Regrarians, uh, the Regen Network here in the States, up in Canada, and uh, we're working with Sask Organics, Organic Connections up in Saskatoon. Um, so just this international group now is, is prepared and ready to train any farmer that says, I wanna learn how to make this transition away from chemicals. The interesting thing is that's not a banning. You, it's not stop spraying, it's actually, how do I actually take care of the soil? And fascinatingly, the very first thing you have to do is not just stop spraying, you have to stop plowing. And to be able to farm without a plow is mind boggling to the modern farmer. We have been using the plow as our central tool for agriculture since 900 AD. And so for 1100 years, this is the principle of farming. And now we're saying that is public enemy number two behind the spraying. We have to stop that plowing of the land. We need to let the microbiome, the fungi, the mycorrhizae take back over the mycelial beds, let these detox our lands and create fertile vitality back in our soils. We have you know, four day intensives that we can take people to. We've got you know, uh, consultants across the country and across the world that are available to help as well. Our org is looking to also subsidize uh, some of this education as well as some of the resources. Uh, my, my private companies, uh, my for-profit companies are working on solutions across the, the board. We've got products that are um, kind of revolutionary next generation of understanding carbon matrix in soils and how to restore carbon matrix, uh, not just in soil, but in plant mass and in root mass. Uh, then how to bring that into the human. We've got human cell, uh, supplement products. We've got pet supplement products. We've got livestock pharmaceutical products coming out next year that are, are nutraceuticals, totally natural compounds that repair the microbiome and carbon cycles in, in the stomachs of horses and cows and swine and beyond. So uh, it's a very exciting period where uh, Farmer's Footprint is, is bringing this energy and, and we're hoping to innovate in, and partner with pharmaceutical companies now to understand how to work within biologic systems instead of against biologic systems and their product innovation. So regenerative agriculture is at the center of the farmer's footprint um, project. Talk a little bit about um, what that means to you. It's sort of a term that gets thrown around a lot lately. And I think a lot of people think, was well, that like organic 2.0? What, what is to you regenerative agriculture? To me, I mean, I think it means practices, you know, free of toxic inputs that provide nutrient-dense food, but also promote biodiversity. Is that about right? Yeah, I would say that um, the latter half of that is probably the, the best definition <clears throat> is the biodiversity piece. And so um, the difference between organic, which is uh, organic agriculture by USDA standards, is just a list of the things that you don't do. It doesn't say what you should do. <laughs> and so nowhere in the organic USDA certification does it say anything about soil or nutrients. And so there's nothing that's actually suggesting that that, that food actually is nutritious or the soil is well cared for. And again, it was devastating when we got on these farms and with the Soil Health Academy start watching uh, real time live soil testing happening to realize that many of the organic farms throughout the Midwest and beyond have worse soil quality than their chemical farming uh, counterparts. Hmm. That was very disappointing to me. And it turns out the reason for that is because of over-disking and plowing. And so because they're not spraying, they tend to become over-reliant on uh, the, the plowing up of, of their cover crops and weeds. And so they're constantly disturbing the soil architecture and infrastructure and therefore undermining soil health. 
And so regenerative is looking at really being uh, out of the way. And so the difference between a regenerative farmer and an organic is really one that starts to allow nature to do its natural cycles, carbon cycles, water cycles, being restored in soil, allowing soil metabolism to diversify. Biodiversity, as you mentioned, is really the hallmark of the permaculture movement, the, the regenerative movement, the biodynamic movement, all of these different words are really speaking to the same phenomenon as you need biodiversity at every level. You need a far more diverse cover crop. A one species cover crop of, of alfalfa to, or something like that is not an interesting effect for nature. If you put an eight or 16 or 32 species cover crop in, there's an explosion of, of diversity. Insects alone, you'll see the moths return, you'll see the, the, the bees and the butterflies returning. You'll see, you know, macro life of, of gophers and bulls and eagles and owls and wolves and coyotes. Like the whole ecosystem will come back in over a seven to 10 year period. And that might sound like a, a terrifying proposition as a farmer until you find out that if you allow that whole ecosystem back in, you eliminate 90% of the cost of being a farmer. You no longer are doing the inputs. You no longer are paying all the diesel costs. You're dropping out all of your inputs and you're allowing nature to create the capacity for, for soil vitality. The fascinating thing that we keep showing in, in our soil uh, product development is that if you have a healthy soil, then you have a, so a healthy root system that grows within that. If you have a healthy root system, the immune system of the plant is extraordinary and a non-stressed plant is actually invisible to your pests and, and diseases. The insect literally can't see the tomato plant that's, that's you know, not calling for help. As soon as you stress a tomato or a corn plant or whatever it is, it now sends out chemokines and chemicals that are saying that it's a stress damaged plant. And nature's response to that is, oh, we're gonna go clean that up. And so the insects come in, the fungi come in, the, the molds come in, the yeast come in, and, and they're not attacking the plant. They're just trying to met metabolize that sick and stressed out plant back into nature so that healthy plants can take back over. Our response is, oh my gosh, all these things are against us. We need to kill all of that. And so we have to pull our way out of that kind of chemical warfare mentality that nature is against us and let nature take back over our agricultural belief system. In so doing, we see farmers literally 5X and 10X their bottom line profits in as short as three to five years. And so that is an extraordinary change in the resilience uh, and, the, and the economic independence of our farmers. Our farmers that have been doing this for 20, 30, 40 years these guys haven't spent a dollar on inputs in years. Their only thing they buy is seed and they make sure they get as much variety of seed and, they, and many of them then will start collecting their own seeds so they don't have to buy their seed again. That's how farming was always done until Monsanto came along and patented uh, the seeds and suddenly every chemical company in the world was trying to patent seeds and patent chemical processes on those seeds. 90% of the corn or 85, 86% of the corn grown in the United States now comes from a seed that's pre-treated with nicotinamides. They're literally red. A corn kernel, and you remember the corn seeds as you pop into popcorn, those things are red when you buy them from the, from the seed store now because they're covered in a red chemical, these nicotinamides and beyond, uh, with a stew of toxicity before they even drop into the ground. Typically, the farmer will spray Roundup the day before, the week before, to kill the cover crop or the weeds, and then they go and and plow in the seed. And so they just are destroying the ecosystem on every level and then dropping in a, a toxin coated seed. And that's the beginning of that plant's life cycle. So it's just, it's really truly mind numbing that we got to the place we are. 
and extraordinary how fast a farmer can recover the ecologic wellness and financial wellness of their farms when they shift away from that codependent relationship. And so that's the imperative. Get wean farmers off of chemical inputs, wean them off glyphosate, turn them into stewards of these diverse ecological healthy systems. That's the answer. How quickly does it have to happen for us to reverse, reverse the tide? In, 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 and on what scale? We have, to, we have to change it in eight years. If we haven't reversed the pattern in eight years, then we uh, reach, a, reach a tipping point um, on the planet. And this is where the, the oceans start to accelerate their acidity. Um, that's when we get catastrophic um, extinction on the planet. The last catastrophic extinction 55 million years ago was caused by death of the topsoil. The death of the topsoil will erase about 80, 85% of life on the planet over the, over the subsequent years. That death of the topsoil was caused by an asteroid or a massive volcanic event that covered the whole earth in, in this huge layer of dust. And so that fine dust silted down into the topsoil, made anaerobic our soils, we lost life on earth. Dinosaurs are famous for disappearing at that point, but it was 85% of biology on the earth at least, all the way down from microbes in the soil all the way to ocean life disappeared. We are in the middle of our sixth great extinction. We've lost 50% of biology on Earth over the last 40 years, and we're speeding that up every year now. And so we are on track to cause this sixth great extinction uh, within the next 60 years or so. That extinction could not could surpass that 85% extinction of death of the soils if we acidify the the, the oceans. What happened uh, in some of the previous extinction events before the the dinosaur event? is that the, uh, the suffocation of the soil was so severe and the CO2 and carbon uh, accumulation in the atmosphere was so severe that the ocean was the last place to take up the CO2. When ocean water takes up CO2 and methane, it becomes acidic, the pH drops. As you acidify the oceans, those extinction events will hit 97 or 98% of, of life on Earth. So that's gonna happen in the next 100 years if we don't change the tide very rapidly. So on which scale do we have to change it? This is the good news. If you haven't heard good news yet from this podcast, here is your good news. If we increase the carbon content, the active carbon capacity of the Earth's agricultural soils that are currently under management by 0.4%, we will pull in enough carbon dioxide from the atmosphere to reverse that whole process. 0.4% of carbon is easily in reach. Uh, currently, agricultural soils depleted or severely depleted across the entire globe. We're looking at one to one and a half percent of active carbon or carbon content in those soils. That is very low. But we show that in five to 10 years of agricultural practices, you can get that to 4% from 1%. That's not a 0.4% improvement. That's a 400% improvement in, in carbon content. That means that you are then, you know, 400 times more acreage. So if with Farmer's Footprint, we have set out to, to convert 5 million acres of, of current, you know, conventional chemical agriculture to this robust thing. If we can do that by, by 2025 and start to see those 5 million acres produce that 400x carbon absorption, we will start to see the leveling and, and ultimately decreasing of carbon content in the atmosphere, and we can reverse this whole catastrophic process. The extraordinary thing is we're showing that if we can extend that out to 10 years, 15 years, and 20 years of practices, we can actually get carbon content in the soil to 8%, 10%, and even a couple farms now measuring 12% carbon content in their soils. 
that remains in most agricultural universities today believed to be impossible. And yet we're measuring that and showing that in real time. And so the agricultural academia doesn't even realize the capacity of Mother Earth to regenerate. And that's because they've never seen it happen before. And so I'm really excited that we are, we are getting to witness farmers leading the charge. And, and, and farmers, really, farmers really are at the front lines of the effort to combat climate change. I mean, recently, a coalition of farmers went to Washington in support of the Green New Deal, for example. Um, and, you know, I was surprised and encouraged to hear regenerative agriculture come up in some of the Democratic primary debates. debates. Yeah, yeah. And, but at the same time, the Trump administration is quickly working to deregulate all kinds of environmental protections. Are, are you at all hopeful that a political solution uh, can address this problem? I mean, I think farmers are are ready to uh, step up to the plate. Do you see politicians uh, in the same position? There is no federal solution um, that's fast enough. It's gonna take us uh, too long for, the, for us to see the federal government respond. But I believe that there's a local and state government solutions that are right in hand. And so that's where we're talking, tackling with Farmers Footprint. We're bringing together a group of experts um, to roll out state farm bills to combat the federal farm bill. Uh, these incentivize uh, farmers to make the jump to regenerative. And we've already shown that this can have a huge economic impact on the state, not just the farmer. And so governors, I think, are very eager to find economic solutions for their states because that's how, that's how they get reelected. Uh, governors always get reelected when when economy is strong in their state, and so we're tackling it on that level. And we believe that if we get you know 15 states with state farm bills, we can actually break the back of the of the federal farm bill and make this this kind of uh, criminalized you know government structure that's so steeped in special interests uh, irrelevant to the argument, and really empower these farmers that really do want to be part of the solution. I was recently speaking on a panel. Um, discussion with Dolores Huerta, who's uh, one of the uh, most successful civil rights uh, activists in history. She was the right-hand woman to Cesar Chavez and the whole uh, Chicano uh, farming movement in the 1960s, 70s, and beyond. She's actually been to the White House more than anybody uh, outside of the government. Over the last 60 years, she's uh, been invited to every administration uh, to visit the White House in the recognition of her accomplishments. And uh, she's uh, got a recent documentary made on her uh, called Dolores. And uh, right after we got done speaking, my wife and I were sitting at her feet and she's just this beautiful woman in her 80s, uh, still just sharp as a tack, brilliant, speaks you know, a thousand statistics a minute. Uh, she's, she's passionate about every aspect of, of health. She, she wants you know, reform of everything from farming to you know sexual orientation practices and everything else she wants you know diversity to be recognized uh, across all levels and she made this awesome awesome statement that i'll never let go of now she said uh, she, i was telling her about farmer's footprint and what we saw the possibility of and and she said this is truly amazing she said what you are doing right now i've seen before and i can tell you that every revolution that i've ever seen be successful always started with the farmers and I thought that was profound. From a woman who's seen 60 years of activism, she's never seen a successful revolution that didn't start with farmers. So I believe that not only are they the scientific and ecologic solution, they are the beginning of our political revolution that will change the landscape of not just American, but global politics. Well, if someone's listening to this and they think, well, that's all well and good, I agree with all of that, but I'm not a farmer. Well, what can I do to help promote this kind of food system? Absolutely. 
It really um, is exciting. So many, many different levels, you know, certainly the most biased of those would be, you know, support farmers footprint on many levels. So uh, our first documentary segment is just 20 minute film and it's our primer to anybody on, on how to go. We've got a, a screening toolkit there. You can go and start a community activation program. Uh, we've got the PowerPoint slides, the talking points, like everything you would need to have your own community impact uh, thing, show the documentary, have a discussion group afterwards, and then bring that uh, that toolkit to your school board, to your city council, and make those changes locally. They, then after that, I would say, you know, in, you know, in donating to the Farmers Footprint, you're invigorating the, the activation, consumer education piece, you're activating the farmer education, you're activating the economic models and, and farm bills and the, and the policies that would come around to break back the USDA and everything else. We, we, we'll, you will carry your impact forward there. But then I wouldn't stop there. The main thing that we have to really do is get relationship back between the farmer and our consumers. You cannot imagine the impact of a human hand reaching out and touching a farmer isolated in the Midwest right now. Become a pen pal. You know, start writing to a farmer. Start telling them that you recognize their importance in the recovery of the devastation we've all caused in our consumer behavior. We have all created the problem together and our farmers can help be the be a, a fulcrum for the solution and so reach out to farmers get to your farmers markets get to your csa's uh, sign up for your csa's be consistent with that these are small investments 40 bucks a month to a csa buy 40 bucks a month of, of produce from your farmers market make small investments and these all shape it and uh, furthermore reach out to your legislators you know and demand that we get fair uh, labeling on our food. In Europe, all of the big companies that we think of, General Mills and you know, all of the, the grain companies that are creating the cereals and granola bars for our children that are laced with Roundup, demand that we get the same labeling respect that the European market does. The companies are already making those labels. We just need to demand that they, they be done here. Uh, so fair labeling laws are gonna be a huge piece of how you can get, uh, become an activator. So those are just some examples. Uh, another last piece of this is really change the behavior of your home. Demand organic food for now and then start to demand you know, regenerative and other alternatives in the future. Stop using chemical, chemical foods in your, in your home. And uh, that alone is gonna shift the, the whole spectrum. Monsanto just sold itself, an American company, to, a ba to Bayer, the, the German pharmaceutical company, largely, I think, because they saw the writing on the wall. American consumers are now demanding five, four to five percent, and in some places more like six percent of our produce now organic. If we can hit fifteen percent of our produce organic, we pull the financial rug out from underneath the chemical companies, and it's no longer financially feasible for them to go through uh, that for for eighty-five percent of the food. We have to take over the majority of the market with organic, just fifteen percent, and so change your behaviors. Ask that your restaurants start to offer organic options. Restaurants have not had that pressure on them. And so demand of your local restaurants and, and tell them that you'll pay the extra premium. I'll pay an extra $1.50 for that meal if it will be organic, no problem. You know, so make these economic demands. A huge way you can have a massive impact is, is take a look at your, your investments. If you're invested in mutual funds or otherwise, Make sure that you've taken a close look at those companies that you're invested in. If you're giving money to the big grain and big pharma and big chemical companies, you're part of the problem. 
So divest from those chemical company and, and mass agricultural systems and invest in small companies, family farms and the like. Those, those investment funds are definitely out there for you to find. Yeah, I mean, I think we've, we've as consumers, we've become, we, we've become accustomed to having access to cheap food. And I was talking yeah. to former uh, Deputy Secretary of Agriculture, Kathleen Merrigan, recently, and she is constantly banging the drum that cheap food has an extremely high cost to human health, to the environment. And I think that's really the piece that's starting to bubble up in the conversation a lot more are these externalities um, that are sort of coming home to roost uh, as a result of our sort of dependence on chemical agriculture. 100%. I, I think that there's um, you know, some extraordinary graphs that you can look at. If you look at the amount of money that the average American household was spending on food in the 1950s versus today, it's pretty stunning. It was anywhere from 35 to 50% of the, Amer the American budget back then, and now it's like less than 10%. So we have started spending money elsewhere, and we, we didn't expect food, food costs to rise. Uh, can you imagine if somebody in the 1950s saw a Nike sneaker uh, selling for $125 a pair? Like they'd be appalled at that kind of price. And yet our cost of lettuce is not significantly higher than it was in the 1950s. And so we haven't seen, you know, the natural, you know, up, you know, upping of these commodities prices affect uh, our farming environment because we have chosen to subsidize those. So we've created a false economy around food, which is, has given us this, you know, crutch of cheap food so that we can spend 90% of our consumer dollar on things like iPhones and you know our our cable and uh, TV systems and you know our cars and smart vehicles and everything else we're buying now, we're, we we have that kind of consumer leverage because we undervalued and devalued our food. Right, and we're, and we're also subsidizing the wrong crops. We're not subsidizing yeah. the healthiest food. foods. Right, actual yeah. food. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe this is a good opportunity to talk about some of your other projects. In in addition to Farmers Footprint, you're also juggling what is at this point sort of a head spinning uh, amount of things, but it all seems to tie together in terms of being about holistic health. Talk a little bit about that if you would. So um, I started with my clinic in 2010 and now we've expanded my clinic into an online environment as well. So we have something called the Intrinsic Health Series. Um, uh, you can find that uh, online. Um, my education website is just zachbushmd.com. And there you can link to a lot of, a lot of these resources, but um, and just more educational content on everything from pregnancy to vaccines all through, you know, life and everything else and kind of what our thoughts are around you know, the cutting edge of microbiome science and where we're at, um, as well as just kind of more holistically looking at human consciousness and where are we going with that, spirituality, how is that in influenced by things like Roundup, uh, which I think bizarrely are very much influenced by one another. Um, but the, the uh, Intrinsic Health Series is an eight-week program where we take people through an intensive uh, training program to to identify and, and foster support to the four major categories of uh, demands that the, the human cell has for health. And so we've taken all of my you know, research background and turned that to look at a human healthy cell and what are the components that would induce health. And so it's a cool eight-week journey that we call biology base, base camp there. Um, the next company that I started was uh, this carbon uh, cycle carbon metabolite information stream out of the microbiome. Uh, in 2014, we launched a line of uh, dietary supplements for human consumption. 
Um, that would become uh, the product Restore, which recently uh, rebranded into Ion Biome, which is a line of products that help support gut health, sinus and respiratory health, uh, the uh, immune system and neurologic systems beyond that. We also have a line for pets, uh, recognizing the very high amounts of Roundup and glyphosate in those. The Ion Biome line, has, we have been able to show in our clinical trials and basic science that we combat the impact of Roundup in human biology. Probial recovery, after that antibiotic damage from these chemicals, we foster rapid repair of uh, the gut lining to protect the immune system and bloodstream, foster repair of the blood-brain barrier, the kidney tubules, and the detox pathways of the body. So it's just very cool how these carbon metabolites from the microbiome really repair all of the damage done by, uh, by our chemical industry. Not because they're fixing anything, but because these microbial new, uh, metabolites are the actual communication network. So the communication network behind, between cells allows cells to heal at a very rapid rate because the healing capacity is innate to any cell. If they don't have the right information, they don't know what to repair. And so we're simply putting back the wireless communication network and we see health and healing break forth, not because the product's doing it, but because that is innate capacity of human biology. Same thing in a dog or a cat. Put them on these carbon metabolites, the wireless communication system turns on, the biology completely transforms in these animals. We are uh, now launched a uh, pharmaceutical brand uh, approved by the FDA in Canada, which is the CFIA. Uh, we get our uh, fi final license to that product in first quarter of 2020. We have our final uh, our dosing trial going on in 12,000 cattle up in uh, uh, outside of Calgary. That product is gonna transform the agricultural environment. We're seeing a huge improvement in feed efficiency with that product, which means it takes less grain to grow lean muscle on these animals. And uh, they, they have a, a shorter dwell time in, in feed lots and the like. And so we're having a huge economic as well as uh, uh, health impact on those animals. We're showing a decrease in antibiotic dependence in those animals as their gut and, and immune system come back online. And so we have a very exciting product that's called LumaShield coming online in Canada in just a few months. It'll be in the United States and throughout uh, the world over the next year. Uh, we have a, a soil amendment product to reverse the damage uh, uh, caused by Roundup in soils. That's called Luma Earth. That's coming online in the first quarter of 2020 as well. And so we're working with uh, everything from large-scale ag to the hemp industry to the vineyard and wine industry to reverse the toxicity of those uh, very chemically dependent uh, crops. Uh, wines in the United States are extremely toxic now. We have 64 detectable residues of herbicides and pesticide in the average California wine. So we're working with the, the Monarch uh, initiative um, coming from Carlo Mondavi uh, in Napa there to uh, create a demonstration uh, vineyard uh, with 75 acres there that uh, is gonna demonstrate the power of regenerative agriculture on, on grapevine. Uh, production and resilience against everything from drought and weather changes to the uh, insects, pesticides, or, and pests and the like. Um, so that project is extremely exciting. We're excited to transform the hemp world because CBD uh, and its demand across the market is now devastating the ecology. Uh, we are not using hemp cane. We are instead piling it up and it's off-gassing methane in the atmosphere at a very high amount. And so we need to reverse that. M the vast majority of, of uh, THC and CBD crops across the country are not being grown organically, and so they're very uh, chemical intensive. The inputs going into those crops are, are used abusively, I would say, because there's such a high economic return that those farmers don't have the same 
you know, narrow margins on their inputs. And so we're seeing a, a glut of inputs pouring into those, those crops. So we have initiatives across all of those. Um, we also are, are working on plastics. We recognize that plastic is just another form of carbon and we should not allow that to be a dead end toxin to the planet. And so we started an energy company working on plastic uh, digestion into to biodiesel and fuels uh, to reduce our dependence on, on fossil fuels uh, for uh, energy autonomy, especially in, in remote areas of agricultural environments as well as island nations and the like. Uh, so a lot of opportunity there. Uh, a couple other companies that I don't have time to tell you about, but those are the <laughs> ones that are probably relevant to, to the projects here. Right. Well, I mean, you, you know, the, the, the problems are so complex, uh, the stakes are so high, but what are some simple things that people can do to protect themselves, to promote better health? Yeah, it's, it's in, in the end, so simple and exciting, you know, just like the good news is that we only need to improve by 0.4% the carbon content in, in the world's agricultural soils. That's still totally in hand. We could do that within three years. I don't think we will. I think it's going to take a lot longer than that, but in the same way, how do you become healthy as a human being? You only need a small touch of, of nature's biodiversity to have a massive impact. Um, some little small studies have even shown if you take a dog and walk them through a hospital for a single day, you can reduce the amount of hospital-acquired infections in that hospital. And so just these tiny touches of nature can really change the trajectory of health for you and your children. So remember to get outside. I encourage my patients to change their behavior in small and major ways in the, in the patterns of the day. Literally change the position of your toothbrush in your bathroom. We've shown that the microbiome on your toothbrush will change depending on how, uh, where it's positioned in the bathroom. And so the microbiome of your mouth has a huge impact on the microbiome of your gut. And so change that location. Instead of driving to work the same pathway, roll down the windows and take a totally different path or even a slightly different path to work so that you're getting exposed to different trees and macro ecosystems as you drive to work. Roll down your windows at home, open the windows. Get that air to exchange so that the microbiome has an, an, ex, an opportunity to breathe with your environment. As you breathe your microbiome, you diversify your, your system. So get outside and into these old, untouched ecosystems. Get to your national parks. Support the park systems. Encourage them to, to maintain the diversity that they have the opportunity to maintain for us. Make those parks stop spraying Roundup all over them that they're currently doing. And so lots of ways to get out there in nature and change this. Eat real food. Stop eating processed food in the day. It's sneaking in all over the place. Those sugar additives that they're using in your coffee drinks, the sugar additives they're putting into your hamburgers. There's some ridiculous many you know, tablespoons of sugar in the average hamburger today. And so just become aware of what you're eating. Start producing your own food again. If you can just grow one mint plant in the window, those things are freaking bulletproof. You can't kill a mint plant. You know, grow something and remind yourself to touch that daily. Take a bite from a real apple or a real tomato. Remind yourself that you are connected to a mother nature that was designed to nurture you into health and longevity. And these are the connections you need to make. Touch humans again. Be intimate with your partner. Be intimate with your children. Hold your children in your lap. Hold them against your skin. Breastfeed. You know, these are the basic things that we've been doing since humankind. And we have stopped doing these very basic things. Uh, when we look at the resilience of the microbiome in, in African tribes right now, we're blown away by the amount of touch. They're not only touching every human in their tribe every day with naked skin on naked skin. They're hugging each other. They're touching each other, they're holding each other's hands, they're on each other's backs, the kids are all over the, the adults. 
they're also touching the animals, the animals that are living around them. And those that don't have domesticated animals, we can find the microbiome of zebra hides in the gut of, of the Hadza tribe. And so that they're always in touch with this greater ecosystem. We touch what? We touch almost nothing today. And so we have to break that pattern of isolation from nature, get back out and expect nature to heal us. Dr. Zach, thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate all you listening, your time and each of you and your impact now. Now that you know the data, you can't help but become an agent of change and that excites me. So blessings on all of you, best of health and enjoy the day. There you have it, Dr. Zach Bush. Thanks for listening to another episode of Tractor Time brought to you by Acres USA and BCS America. Subscribe to our channel on YouTube, iTunes, or anywhere podcasts are available. Also find us on acresusa.com, ecofarmingdaily.com, and don't forget to subscribe to our monthly magazine. Thanks for listening and have a great week.